happy 2019. I hope you've all managed to take some time to celebrate. As it's the new year and New Year's often come with a makeover in one form or another, the Nature Careers team decided to give the podcast a makeover. As well as a new name, we've also got a new format. So instead of our monthly episodes, we're going to be producing more episodes in 2019 and grouping them together into different series, featuring six weekly episodes, followed by a short break. So here's series one, funding. And as an added extra, each episode in this series will end with a 10-minute sponsored slot from the European Research Council. So without any further ado, let's go. Hello, I'm Julie Gould, and this is Working Scientist, a Nature Careers podcast. Grant funding plays such an overwhelming role in the career of an academic scientist, and the funders are all too aware of it. Now, I know that all researchers spend many sleepless nights and cups of coffee writing grant proposals. So when I first started doing the research for this series, I wanted to find the best experts to give you the best tips on how to write the best grant proposals to make things a little bit easier for you. But then I came across a research paper that made me stop and reflect. In March 2018, Elizabeth Peer, who was then a PhD student at the University of Wisconsin-Madison in the Educational Psychology Department, published a paper as part of her thesis in PNAS. The paper was titled Low Agreement Among Reviewers Evaluating the Same Grant Applications. When I first read this title, I thought, wait a minute... I thought the idea of the whole funding process was that the top proposals were being funded, the ones where everyone in the peer review system agreed that these were the best ideas supported by the best researchers to do the work. But clearly this title shows that there's something else going on in the background. So I wanted to find out more. The research was funded by the National Institutes of Health, who commissioned an independent study to examine the potential for bias to enter into the peer review process, The overarching goal of the whole project was to look for evidence of gender or racial bias based on the characteristics of the PI or the application and where in the process these biases might enter. Now this particular piece of research from Peer is just one of the studies. It recreated a peer review panel to see how these meetings unfold and how they affect the decision-making process. Using previously accepted NIH project proposals, Peer explored this as part of her research. But before we go any further, it's worth me outlining some of the basic steps of how the NIH proposal review system works. Now, just so you're clear, these steps are the bare bones and they miss out a lot of the details, but they should give a flavour of what happens once you hit submit. So, the NIH uses a two-stage review process. In the first stage, between two and five reviewers individually evaluate each grant application and they rate them using the NIH's nine-point scale with one for exceptional and nine for poor. They also record what they feel are the application's strengths and weaknesses. The reviewers will then meet for what's called a study section meeting to discuss their preliminary ratings. The discussion only looks at the top half of all the applications they have evaluated. The study section members then collectively assign a final rating, and this is averaged into a final priority score. So that's stage one. Then in the second stage, members of the NIH advisory councils use this priority score and the written critiques from the reviewers to make funding recommendations to the director of the NIH Institute or centre that awards the funding. So, given all that, 
I spoke to Elizabeth Peer, who now works as a research manager at Education Analytics, to find out more about her research. In this particular study, I was really interested in looking at the degree of agreement between different reviewers and what is even happening before the reviewers come together and how are reviewers going about scoring uh, these applications based on their assessments. So another way of putting that is, um, are the reviewers agreeing not only on the score that they assign, but are they also identifying similar strengths and weaknesses uh, in the critiques that they write prior to the meeting? And also, what's the relationship between that numeric score and the written evaluation? So there were some sobering results. We found that, numerically speaking, there really was no agreement between the different individual reviewers uh, in the score that they assigned to the proposals. Um, We also found that when we were looking at the relationship between the strengths and weaknesses written in a proposal and the score that was assigned, uh, we did see a relationship between the number of weaknesses that a reviewer would identify in their critique and the score that the reviewer assigned. But that relationship between the weaknesses and the score uh, doesn't hold up between different reviewers. Another way of saying this is that the individual reviewers were really consistent. The more weaknesses they identified in the proposal, the lower the score awarded. But unfortunately, it appeared that each reviewer had a different idea of what a weakness is and what score that meant the proposal would ultimately be given. So what this means is... We can't really compare the evaluations of different reviewers and the degree of disagreement that we see uh, in the scores seems to be a reflection of a a different sense of calibration um, in what constitutes a, a bad score versus a good score. The reviewers do come together for a meeting to discuss the papers based on the initial reviews. And in the meetings that Elizabeth Peer recreated... As you would predict and as people told us based on their intuition participating. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. In these kinds of meetings, the range of scores does get smaller after discussion. So there's a degree of consensus building within individual peer review panels. But the agreement between different panels actually got wider after discussion. And we had a unique opportunity here because we had four different panels that were evaluating the same applications. So in practice, each 
application is only evaluated by one study section, but for the purposes of the study, we um, exploited that we had these four different groups looking at the same proposals. And, and so in the process of building consensus within a given panel, different panels actually went farther apart. So really, the outcome that you're that you're coming to is that it's potentially better that these reviewers don't meet? Our studies haven't indicated any value or benefit in the sense of improving the consistency or reliability of the process. But what about the variability in the quality of the proposal being discussed? Doesn't that make a difference? But we uh, had to ask people to donate their uh, their applications and the summary statement that they received to us. And uh, the donations that we received uh, were just happened to be funded. And so we tried to say that above a certain quality threshold, our, our results suggest that it's essentially a random process and the meeting doesn't seem to uh, remove that randomness. However, I will say a caveat to that caveat is that the applications that get discussed in the meeting have already gone through triage. So only the top 50% of applications based on the preliminary score even get discussed in the meeting. So what we are talking about is given that top 50% of proposals after you've already excluded the ones that really have no chance of being funded initially, uh, there really is a lot of randomness. But even more so, there's already randomness such that the applications that have been weeded out, so to speak, and don't get the opportunity to be discussed in the meeting might actually have a lot of merits. Had it been assigned to a different panel with different reviewers, it very well could have gone on to be discussed. So what you're saying really is that luck plays a very large role in whether or not your research gets funded. Yes, that is what our results suggest. Above uh, a certain degree, if you have a relatively competitive application uh, and you're not, uh, there, there aren't any major issues uh, that would in- immediately disqualify it to any kind of uh, representative expert in the field, uh, there's a great deal of randomness and luck that we find uh, in determining who does and does not get funding. So what does that mean for all those people who are spending these hours and hours and hours and hours and hours on getting their funding applications organized and sorted and written up? I mean, really, I just, my heart goes out to them. Yes, my heart does as well. I mean, it's one of the reasons I uh, studied this for my dissertation, because it's incredibly important for individual careers, and it's also incredibly important for the progress of science, right? We want to make sure that the most deserving ideas are getting rewarded and funded um, and that it's not just picking out of a hat. So, um, I, I mean, there are a couple pieces of silver lining. I think that we, you know, see evidence, especially as uh, grants get resubmitted, that being uh, responsive to reviewers' critiques can play uh, a strong role in, in conveying to reviewers uh, kind of improvement over time. And so there is something to be said for if you get uh, rejected or you don't get funded, uh, having some tenacity and resubmitting that application and, and doing everything you can to address the reviewers' critiques and feedback uh, can, can make uh, a potential difference. I also think that... <laughs> 
you know, it's important for folks not to be completely, uh, to take it personally. As academics, we definitely are used to rejection and used to uh, plenty of times when we think we have really great ideas and reviewers of manuscripts or of grant applications don't seem to agree with us. So I would encourage people to take a little bit of solace and that it's not necessarily a reflection of the quality of the ideas, but it's more um, kind of a feature of the process. How would you suggest then that the process is improved? There should be some uh, assessments of whether what um, some scholars have called a modified lottery system could do. So the idea being that there's some initial screening process um, that, uh, you know, experts do uh, conduct to make sure they're, like I said, kind of weeding out any really problematic proposals, things that are just wildly um you know, out of left field in terms of being feasible to complete given the budget or things like that. Um, and then after that kind of initial screen, then it really is a random selection. And, and the reason I think that would be an improvement is because if the process is already random above a certain quality threshold, which our study suggests it is, we might as well save the money and the time involved to convene thousands of people and spend uh, millions of dollars to have these meetings if the outcome is essentially the same as a random process. Now, we'll touch on the idea of a lottery-style funding system later on in the series. But what we can say now is that change is going to be slow. It always is in academia. Is there anything that can be done in the meantime before this lottery-style system or something completely different is created? Starting to accept the fact that it's not a completely objective process that humans are fallible, they are subjective, and when you're asking experts to make very complex judgments about uh, the potential likelihood of success of a project, um, that's a really difficult decision that's going to bring in a lot of uh, kind of heuristics and biases that go into their decision making. My final question to Elizabeth was, What advice have you got for anyone who is currently writing a grant proposal to the NIH? One piece of advice, which is probably pretty obvious, but I will say is backed by our findings, is that uh, weaknesses are much more predictive of the score that reviewers will assign rather than strengths. So what that means is minimize as many weaknesses as you can. So after all of that, I'm intrigued. What do you think? How would you feel about a more lottery-style funding system? Please send in your thoughts to the Nature Careers team, which you can do via Twitter, Facebook and LinkedIn. And over the next two episodes, I'll be speaking to different experts on how to minimise the number of weaknesses within your funding application, in the hopes, fingers crossed, that you'll have a bit more success and a bit more luck. Now, that's all for this section of our Working Scientist podcast. We now have a slot sponsored by and featuring the work of the European Research Council. Thanks for listening. I'm Julie Gould. So my name is Jean-Pierre Bourguignon and my title is the President of the European Research Council. Uh, which is, of course, uh, supported by the, uh, the European Union as through the European Commission. I'm a friend. Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mathematician, I should say. Uh, I spent most of my career in uh, CNRS, uh, Centre National de Recherche Scientifique. My field was uh, differential geometry, but a lot of work at, actually at the boundary of theoretical physics. Uh, general relativity and uh, Dirac operators and uh, these kind of uh, topics, but still always as a mathematician. The European Research Council is actually an interesting uh, story. It was created in uh, 27, so it's now 11 years of age, and it was a long process. Myself, I, the first time I heard of, about the possibility of having an ERC was 1995. And uh, it was a long effort by the scientific community. And uh, step after step, uh, we had convinced people in the Commission, people in the European Council, namely the, the, the countries, that they should support such a project. Uh, but still, it has uh, a lot of uh, very specific characteristics. Particularly, the power which has been given to its scientific council is considerable. It uh, really a, was an innovation. Uh, and um, the, the council has the responsibility of deciding on uh, how to spend the money and how to do the evaluation. And this is unique in the, in the setting of the European Commission, that uh, a group of 22 scientists are given such responsibility. And of course, as president of the European Research Council, they have some very specific ones, which is to confirm the list of people who are granted and uh, really guarantee the, the quality of, um, of the work done. And the mission of the ERC was really to make Europe more attractive, to be a place where science can develop at really in the most ambitious way, and to push um, the, the ambition, particularly of young people, upward. That is, to make them independent early enough and to take their vision on board. You know, we are at this stage of giving 1,100 research grants uh, these years which is, of course, a very significant amount of money. The budget is uh, now really over 2 billion euro per year. And we are covering all fields of, uh, of science, uh, that is, uh, physical sciences, engineering, including math, computer science, and so on, life sciences, and social science humanities. If you want to know what you're doing, you need to talk and meet and discuss with the the people you are funding, and so I, I do travel a lot, in particular in Europe, to meet uh, w people we call our grantees, that people who got, get the grants from the ERC. And this part of, this, of my job is really extremely uh, worthwhile and uh, extremely rewarding because these people are... The selection process is a very tough one. Uh, typical success rate at this moment is uh, 13%. Uh, and it means that people have all proposed very ambitious projects that's a condition to be successful at TRC. High risk, high gain. We need to encourage the panels uh, who are selecting people to really um, accept to, be, to take risks. And that's one thing I hear regularly from uh, grantees, 
saying, telling me that I, I submitted a similar, um, very similar project to my national agency, but then I was not funded. It was considered too risky. Then I submitted to ERC, and then ERC funds me. So it makes a big difference. Another component which is very important in our strategy is the fact that we, the calls which have been put to, uh, put uh, in place by the European Research Council, really uh, we have three categories at the moment for for the individual grants, which is the starting grants, consolidated grants, and advanced grants, and it means the time to PhD. So starting grants two to seven years, uh, advanced grant, um, in, uh, consolidated grants seven to twelve years. And advanced grants, there is no condition. It just means people who are already confirmed. And uh, while doing that, it means in the end that we are dedicating typically two-thirds of our budget to, to the younger people, people who are typically below 40 years of age. Very often, uh, people uh, get the, the belief that uh, really, if you're not from uh, one of the leading research institutions in Europe, I mean, uh, then you have no chance. This is not the case. I mean, the, the institution you are, which is your host institution, is not part of the evaluation. What is really the key for the evaluation is the project. Uh, you have to show that you have thought of what kind of resources will be, will be needed, and you describe them. But this is not the institution is as such which is uh, very important. So it means that in particular in terms of the support we give, uh, part of it could be also buying uh, expensive equipment if you need them and if it's not available in your institution. So um, we consider the project not just as uh, helping the people, but helping the people also to set up the environment which will make it possible to get the, the project through. So this is one, uh, one sometimes misconception that people have, that they get the, the feeling that uh, if they are coming from a smaller place, they have no chance. The number of institutions the ERC has been uh, signing with is close to 800 now. So, of course, it's um, quite a significant number of institutions based in Europe. Uh, of course, some uh, of the leading ones got more uh, grants than others, but definitely even small institutions have been very successful at, uh, at ERC. One of the key things that ERC is doing is empowering researchers. This is something very, very, very important for us. And a very good example for this is a... Uh, one of the specific characteristics of the ERC program, which is called portability. But the host institution is not part of the uh, selection criteria. It's just here to make sure that there is a, a legal body which is able to receive the contract. And it gives a lot of power to the researchers. And one of the typical powers is what I mentioned, portability, which means that the researcher can leave the, uh, can change the host institution he, if he or she feels that he's not given the proper treatment or maybe he could have other personal reasons to do that. This is the whole philosophy behind it. We really want to be the researchers in the driver's seat at the level of the council, but also at the level of the, how they run their contracts. And of course, uh, they, there is an institution behind it because you want to be sure that the, there is a legal basis for this. But we really want the researchers to be able to do their research in the best possible conditions. 
The map I have in front of me, which is the map of the world, has on top of it uh, one of our motto, which is open to the world. One of the conditions to be funded is that you have to, have to spend at least 50% of your time in Europe, but you can be from any country. I mean, the, we want to be sure that Europe is uh, the leader to tackle some of the most challenging scientific problems. At the very beginning, we, we could notice that uh, the percentage of women who were applying to ERC was less than the percentage of women in the scientific community, and we felt this was definitely not adequate. Also, we had the, for the ones who applied, their success rates was definitely lower than success rates of men. Through a very sustained efforts and identifying the issue from the very beginning, I think we made very significant progress. So first of all, the percentage of women applying to ERC has been steadily growing. We are now basically at the level where the percentage of women applying to ERC is very similar to the level of uh, the percentage of women in the age group uh, of uh, the different calls we have. So from that point of view, I think we really achieved something, which means that there is no some kind of a resistance or reluctance of women to apply. So this is one step. And then, of course, very important, but I think the two are linked, the fact that in recent years, the ERC uh, women have been, uh, in average, more successful than men. It's a very slight difference, but uh, since we started with a situation which was the opposite, we are very pleased that all efforts we made, particularly uh, to tackle um, implicit bias or various other things, uh, have been more or less successful. I've been visiting uh, many, many countries in Europe, in particular uh, countries in uh, EU 13, because I feel you, you need to understand the, the real situation people are uh, exposed to in the various uh, countries. And they are the ones who joined the Europe the most recently. And most of them are located in the eastern part of Europe. And it, it's very important to, to realize that actually situation can be quite different from one country to the next. Uh, it has to do with the teaching load, it has to do with the power structures in the institutes, it has to do, of course, with the support which is available to people. So for me, it was very, very important to uh, meet uh, the researchers, because that's for me the, the key point, uh, also to meet uh, authorities in these countries and to understand in which environment they are operating uh, because I think that's the, the very best way. We, at the level of the European Research Council, have also introduced some help, in particular by uh, encouraging the uh, various uh, countries, could be also regions, to support possibilities of uh, researchers in uh, typically underrepresented regions, could be EU 13 countries, to really give them some uh, the possibility of spending some time with the support of their countries or their region in ERC teams so that they understand what it takes to submit a proposal, but also to understand better, uh, to really uh, also uh, test their ideas with other people so that then they have a much better idea what it takes to, to submit a proposal and therefore they are better prepared personally, I mean just intellectually, to really submit a proposal in good conditions because they can really, they, they have seen uh, what uh, difference it, make, uh, it makes and also uh, what also the kind of uh, effort you have to put into if you want to be successful. Hmm. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.